0: Well, why don't we pray, and then we'll turn to Psalm 51 and look at it together. Now, Lord, as we come to the study of your word, we thank you that your word, the scriptures, are perfect, even as we just heard from Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Your word that we have open in front of us right here is, is so powerful that is able to Expose our sin and show us the evils of our sin, and yet it shows us the grace and the glory of your mercy as well. We thank you for your word that has the power to transform, not only in conversion, but it continues to conform us to Christ as we walk in a manner worthy and pleasing to him as we grow in grace. So do that work, we pray this evening as we talk about real repentance. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 51, if you have your Bible open, follow with me there. Uh, psalm 51, this is probably a very familiar psalm. I've preached this eight times before I looked at my folder. I've preached this, sermon, this psalm eight times, and I have a completely different outline tonight. So we'll see how long it takes to go through it. But it's a very familiar psalm, though. We know it. We're familiar with it. It is a psalm of David from the heading when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you Only I have sinned and done the evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean." Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness, O Lord." Open my lips, that my mouth may declare your praise, for you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering, for the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering and whole burnt offering, And then young bulls will be offered on your altar for the choir director. Undoubtedly, it is a topic that is not preached on very much. It certainly is not mentioned very much in evangelism. And even churches and pastors and teachers and leaders are afraid to touch on and even mention the topic. It is the topic of repentance. Repentance which is really sad because repentance is such a prominent theme in the whole Bible. God requires real repentance. Repentance is absolutely essential. It is important. It is vital. And it must be present in all of our lives, in all of our lives. Al Martin said it like this, quote, Repentance is the soul's divorce from sin. Kurt Daniel put it like this. He said repentance is the vomit of the soul. The Westminster Confession of Faith says that the repentant man so grieves over and he hates his sin to turn from them all and to turn to the Lord, endeavoring to walk with him, in the way of his commands. I bet even the children here, boys and girls, could probably repeat our own catechism. What is repentance? Repentance is being sorry for sin and hating and forsaking it because it is displeasing to God. Think about that for a minute. Hating and forsaking sin. May I just begin with the question for all of us, Does repentance mark your Christian life? Does your spiritual growth in Christ include a regular act of repenting before God? Are you repentant over the sins of your heart, of the sins of your mouth, of the sins of your Motives over the sins of your life and conduct. Do we grieve over our sin? Are Are we those that have a humble sorrow over our sin, over the sinfulness of our sin before the holy God that we have sinned against? Psalm 51 has been called by one commentator, the sinner's guide. I like that because I need that. It's called the sinner's guide, because all sinners must repent, and all sinners must receive the forgiveness of God. But let's be honest, though. Let's just be honest. Repentance is tough. It's tough. Repentance is grueling. It is hard. It is humiliating, and it's humbling. It's humbling. Real repentance is. But it's absolutely essential. Without repentance— God says sinners will perish. Just as we would believe in Christ to be justified, and yet you and I know that we must continue to live by faith in our Christian lives. Well, so the parallel is true. We must repent and be forgiven, but we keep on living lives of repentance. Not to be saved all over again, but to enjoy and maintain close fellowship with God our Father in turning from sin and hating sin because it is displeasing to God. Now, Psalm 51 is really, uh, it's a song that the Bible has given us that is unlike any other. It's written, you know the story, 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12 is the background. David should have gone out to battle. He should have done what a king did in the springtime. Kings go out to battle, but he didn't. He stayed back. In the afternoon, he went out to the roof of his palace. He looked out and he saw a woman bathing. Maybe he knew that she would be there. Maybe he had seen her before, but on this particular occasion, he saw her. He lusted after her. He desired her in his heart. He prolonged the lingering look. He sent for her. He took her. He committed adultery with her, but there is much more to the story, as you know. He covered his sin. He got her husband drunk, and then he ended up killing her husband, trying to send him back home. But eventually, of course, he killed Uriah. And David's life and kingdom and family and children was a mess for the rest of his life. A tragedy can a man after god's own heart who willfully gives himself to sin like this can he be forgiven can can someone like this repent of their sin and be restored to god and have the nearness of god restored is that possible Psalm 51 says, with a loud, unmistakable, all caps, yes, he can be forgiven. I want to give you three opening observations, though, of this psalm that I think are hopefully helpful. Number one, this is a prayer. Every single line is a prayer. And we know that because he's addressing God as you. You, 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 oh God, you, oh God. It's a prayer. The whole thing is a prayer. Number two, this is tough. This is humiliatingly honest. It is brutally honest. I mean, true confession is the stripping of oneself naked before God. It is honest, open, full, laying out all of the sins before God. Not hiding, not keeping anything hidden, but giving everything out in the open to God. A third observation from the song is that true repentance, true confession must, hear this, it must receive and rejoice in the forgiveness that God gives. If you're going to confess and you're going to repent, you have to receive the forgiveness that God promises to give you. That's a beautiful, beautiful lesson that we learn from the psalm. Repentance, is that great doctrine that is necessary in responding to the gospel for salvation. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, unless you repent, you're all going to perish. Luke 13. Acts 3, Peter said, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away. We read in Acts 26, the apostle Paul said to the official, repent and turn to God. Paul said that repentance can be faked. And it can be masked. 2 Corinthians 7, there's a worldly repentance that leads to death. Hebrews 6 verse 1 calls repentance a foundational doctrine that must be known and understood. We learn from Hebrews 12 that just a few tears does not mean that one has repented. Shedding tears does not equal repentance How important is repentance? God commands every person to repent, Acts 17. And perhaps even more than that, no one in all the Bible calls sinners to repent more than God himself. And we know that from the Old Testament, hundreds of times, turn, return, repent, be restored over and over. These words all through the Old Testament and the New where God calls sinners to turn, to turn back to him. Now you and I need that. You and I need that not just initially to get saved. You and I need that daily in our Christian walk. What I want to help you understand this evening, hopefully in a practical and simple way, I want to give you four features of real repentance. Four features of real repentance. All of them have to be there. All of them have to be there, not only because the psalm brings it out, but the breadth of God's word supports what we're going to look at this evening. So what is real repentance? Number one in your outline, it begins with desperate pleadings desperate pleadings. Verses 1, 2, and 3 show us a man who is contrite before God. He is contrite before God. Real repentance always includes a right view of sin and then a right view of God. Notice the words just in verse 1 and 2. Notice the words for sin that David includes. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your love. Verse 1, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. The word sin in verse 2 means missing the mark, like shooting the arrow. We've missed the mark of obeying God. The word transgression means that God has a law and we have defiantly transgressed the law. That's transgression. The third, perhaps the most sobering of all of them, is that word iniquity, which means twisted. We've taken what God has said and we've twisted it to our own liking. That's not very pleasant because that's quite humiliating, but we're all guilty of iniquity. Sin, transgression, iniquity, we have to have a right view of sin. The piling of the terms emphasizes that our sin is great. Commentators go on and on about the the nature of sin that comes out in this psalm. It is missing the mark. It is rebellion. It is evil. We are covered with guilt. We are covered with shame. It is foolishness. Uh, Sin is a lie. It is the opposite of truth. It unmans the man. It crushes the one who indulges it. I mean, on and on we could go. And David gets it. Real repentance always begins with a right view of sin, but not only a right view of sin, you gotta have a right view of God. A right view of God. Notice, notice how the psalmist begins in verse one: be gracious to me, O God, according to your covenant-keeping love. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgression. And then verse two: wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and Cleanse me. I love the verbs. Be gracious, blot out, wash me thoroughly, cleanse me. You can almost imagine a guy who's on his knees and his face to the ground and he's weeping and he acknowledges God, I've sinned. I'm not hiding anything. I'm desperately pleading and pouring out my heart to you. I need you to erase my sin. I'm desperate. Oh, Father, I have nowhere else to go. You can, you can almost hear David say, God, wash me. God, forgive me. Oh, God, you see everything. Oh, God, take action to cast all of my sins into the depths of the ocean. I beg of you, forgive me. Even verse 3 says, I, I know my transgressions and my sin is, is ever before me. It's not that he can't be forgiven. It's that the consequences of his sin still remain and will linger with him. All desperation comes to the God of all grace. I love verse one, be gracious to me. You know, it reminds me of the, the the tax collector, the publican. Remember him in Luke 18, when he went up to the temple to pray and he couldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven, but he was beating his chest, which was a Jewish symbol of mourning and repentance. And he would beat his chest and he said, God Be merciful to me, but more literally in the Greek, God, propitiate me, propitiate me, the sinner desperate pleadings to a merciful God. We come before God desperately, heal me, protect me, forgive me, blot out my sin. And when we repent to God in desperate pleadings, they are always met with infinite love and perfect forgiveness. Always. Don't forget how the psalm begins. Be gracious according to your love. Be gracious according to your love. So real repentance must begin here. It must begin with desperate pleadings. Desperate pleadings. A, a contrite man who knows his sin rightly, he views God rightly, and he's desperately calling out. Number two, real repentance must include honest confession. Honest confession. The key word here is confession confession. John Flavel, the Puritan, said it's always easier to cry against a thousand sins of others than to kill one of our own sins. It's easy to point out the sins of other people, but it's a lot more difficult to deal with the sins in my own heart. Jonathan Edwards said repentance is humiliation of sin before God. But here's what I want you to get in verses 4 to 9. Hear this. Whatever you uncover in confession, God is lavish to cover it in forgiveness. Whatever you uncover in confession, God covers it in forgiveness. But I think the flip is also true. If you and I try to cover our sin... One day, God will uncover it at the throne of his judgment bar. But whatever we uncover, whatever, whatever we bring before him in true heartfelt confession, God is lavish to cover it, lavish to forgive. Look at verse 4. Notice what David says. This is kind of shocking because verse 4, Against you, you only, I have sinned. David, no, you haven't. I mean, you you sinned against Bathsheba. You sinned against Uriah, her husband. You sinned against your own wife and family. You sinned against the nation. And you've sinned against God. You've sinned against all of them, David. He says, yeah, yeah. But God, you and you alone are the one that I have sinned against. All of our sin, whatever it may be, is always an affront to the holy God. Notice in verse 4, he says, I have done what is evil. In the Hebrew, I've done the evil. What's the evil? It's the capital punishment of adultery and murder. There's no sin to atone for that. That's death. I've done the evil. I deserve to die. David acknowledges against you, O God, you alone, I've done the evil. I've done the worst. There's no forgiveness by atonement for me. I should die as a criminal according to the Levitical law. And yet, he acknowledges his sin. He knows in verse 5 that he was brought forth in iniquity, meaning the very moment of conception. Verse 5, in sin, my mother conceived me. It doesn't mean that he's a product of sin. But it means that from the very moment that he was in his mother's womb conceived, he had a sin nature. We're not sinners because of what we do. We're sinners because of who we are. From the very moment a little child is formed in the womb of his mother, as precious as that little baby is, he's a sinner. Without even having done an act of sin yet. And David acknowledges that. Verse 6, you desire truth in the innermost being and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Don't miss verse 7. What's hyssop? It's a, it's a plant that grows out of the stone walls of Israel. It was the hyssop plant that was used in Exodus when the people of Israel sacrificed the lamb and they dipped the hyssop plant in that blood, and then they would apply it, almost like a brush, they would apply that blood to the doorpost. Purify me with that kind of hyssop. I need I need a cleansing from the blood, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow." David acknowledges his sin personally. He acknowledges his sin nature. He acknowledges that he needs to be cleansed. He acknowledges that he wants God to blot out his sin. I love David's heart of confession here because he knows the only way back to God is through the blood of the Lamb. I need that hyssop. The same blood that turned away the angel of death and covered the people of Israel and Egypt, I want that same blood that covers me. I want the blood of the lamb to wash me and to forgive me. I am reminded when we think about honest confession and heartfelt confession, 1 Timothy 1, we read in verse 13, Timothy, Paul said, I was formerly a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was a violent aggressor. I mean, he's not hiding anything. And yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. In verse 15, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost of all. What's confession? Confession is laying it all out before God. Against you, I've sinned. I've done the evil. I've done it. I'm not hiding it. I'm laying it all out one by one. Paul does it in 1 Timothy. I was a violent aggressor. I was a blasphemer. I am the chief of sinners. He lays it all out. And when you do that, there's hope. Christ came to save the worst of sinners. I'm reminded of the prodigal in Luke chapter 15. He had that rehearsed confession. I will go back to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and I've sinned against your sight. Make me as one of your hired men, for I am no longer worthy to be called one of your servants. And while he is approaching, he is rehearsing that in his mind. He's going to lay it all out before his father. He's going to bring it all to the open. He's going to own it. He doesn't shift the blame. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't blame other people. I've sinned. That's honest confession. Against you. And you only have I sinned. In your outline, real repentance includes a third element. I think this is important. David brings out in verses 10 to 13 a singular ambition. Now, hear this. In this third point here, the key word here is communion. I I want communion with God. Now, listen carefully. There's a lot of people who fake repentance because they don't want a consequence. Real repentance is, I hate my sin because I want restored communion with God. I want fellowship with God. Heath Lambert, in writing a book on sexual purity, he says, "Until God is your chief concern, and until sinning against him is what makes your heart break, you'll never turn the corner. I mean consequences are here and consequences are there, but until God, and sinning against God is my chief concern, I'll never really will break from my sin heaven. Another writer, Bob Pierce, said, let my heart be broken with the things that break God's heart. What do we learn from David in verses 10 and following? Repentance is not just getting out of a consequence. Repentance is restoring communion with God, our Father. Look at verse 10. Create in me a clean heart. Can I give you a little clue into the Hebrew? That word create is the same word that is used in Genesis 1 when God created. Guess what? The only one that can do this action is God. David doesn't want, he doesn't just want a renewal. He doesn't want just kind of a few consequences turned away. He wants God to do a supernatural work in his heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. He's not talking salvation. He's a man after God's own heart. He's saved. He knows that. He's talking about nearness to God. Don't, don't let me be distant from you, O oh God. Don't let your salvation, mercy, and the intimacy of knowing you as my father, I don't want to be distant from you. David wants communion. That's his singular ambition. I want restored fellowship with God. It's a beautiful, beautiful prayer. David longs for restoration. Restoration. Not, not that God, listen, not that God stopped being David's father. It's not that God stops being our father when we sin, but we repent so that there would be unhindered, unclouded, unbroken nearness to the father. Nothing, nothing separating us. We, we don't want there to be any, any hindrance, anything dividing us between the Lord in our own hearts. It's like Peter. When Peter denied the Lord on those three occasions, you know as well as I do, that he heard that rooster crow the second time. And then the text says, he went out and he wept bitterly. That's it. That's all the text says. We know that it was a genuine repentance that led to greater communion with God. Why? Because in John chapter 21... Jesus said to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And then a third time, because he denied him three times, so the Lord asked him three times, do you love me? So true repentance is connected to communion and love of God. Do you love me? Yes, I love you, Peter said. Of course I love you. You know all things. You know that I love you. That's the beauty of repentance. There is a singular ambition to be devoted and increase in our love for Christ. I want to draw this to a close with the fourth point of real repentance. It's in verses 14 to 19, and it's thoughtful replacement. I wonder if this is where much repentance falls short. Guilt is good, and it's from God, and it leads us to repentance, and forgiveness is good, and that is essential, and we must receive it, but there needs to be a turning, a replacing, a putting off of the old, and a putting on of the new, and verses 14 to 19 shows a life of consecration. Verse 14, deliver me from, in the Hebrew. It's the violent bloods of murder. That's what David says. This is the word for which there is no atoning sacrifice in the Mosaic law. Death penalty. What is David's pray? Deliver me, God deliver me. Only you can do this. Oh God, you're the God of my salvation. Verse 14, he's saved. David knows he's saved. He knows he's a child of God, but he's begging for mercy. But he doesn't end there. Look at what he resolved to do. Notice the putting on. Notice the thoughtful replacement. End of verse 14, then my tongue will joyfully sing. You know what? Can I tell you what God has done for my soul? Paul does it in Galatians 1. Paul does it in Philippians 3. Paul does it in 1 Timothy 1. I mean, Paul does it throughout the letters. He boasts in how great God is in forgiving him and how God has been changing him as he walks in newness of life. David says, I will sing of your righteousness. Verse 15, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. And then verse 18 and 19. Now you and I know there's a lot more that could be said in a lot of applications here, so I'll mention it and leave it. David's life was a wreck after this. His kingdom was a wreck. His own son, Absalom, I mean, just lived his life to murder his own father and usurp the throne of his father. But even though David sinned greatly, God gave him, listen carefully, a ministry of prayer. It doesn't mean if you sin, you're useless in the kingdom of God. It doesn't mean that you can't do anything for God, that, that you're worthless and that you have no place to serve God. David is going to pray, verse 18 and 19, by your favor, do good to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem, then you will delight in righteousness. He's praying. He, he has a ministry of prayer. Even those who have fallen can devote themselves to prayer. You know what? One thing, at the very end of a psalm, do you see the title? At the very conclusion, it's the title of Psalm 52. Do you see it in your Bible? For the choir director. You know what that teaches? Hear this. When you sin and you repent and you're restored to God, guess what? You need the people of God. This is not an individual isolation thing. This is, I need the people of God. I need the choir director. I need the congregation. I need the worship. I need to be with the people of God. That's what David says at the very end. I need to be with the people of God. Now, much more could be said on that psalm. But before we close... Reflect on on your life. I've had all week to do this and reflect. What sin in your life do you need to repent of? Lust? Lying? Pride? Judgmentalism or a critical spirit? Cutting and sarcastic or angry words? Slander or gossip, whether you're the one speaking or listening to it. Uh, And an overly excessive desire of self-preservation. Lack of sharing the gospel for fear of man. Man Man-pleasing. I mean, just the excessive desire to please man. Or bitterness, or anger, or resentment, or or. Worry about the unknown or a lack of trust in God's promised provision, slothfulness, laziness, not working 100% energy with the time that God gives, pornography, worldliness, immorality in any of the forms. What, what sin in your life, in my life, must we repent of? You, you come to God humbly and broken with these marks of real repentance like we've looked at tonight. Listen, God takes action. I want you to listen to Luke 15, verse 20. When the prodigal got up and he came to the father, while he was a long way off, the text says the father saw him and the father felt compassion for him and the father ran to him. So you could repent to God, but God is running to you and he embraces you and the father kisses you. Look, you, you come to God in repentance, but guess what? God runs to you in lavish forgiveness. Hear these words. You repent and come to God. Hear these words. Jesus said in Matthew 9, take courage, your sins are forgiven. He said to the former prostitute in Luke 7, 47, your sins have been forgiven First John 2:12 Your sins have been forgiven. Colossians 2 God made you alive together with Christ having forgiven us all of our transgressions. What an amazing God. So we come with all of our sin to God. All of our sin and guess what? He's got double mercy. You come with the load of your sins to God, and he has an infinite storehouse of grace. You come with all of your burdens to Christ, and he can lift all of them. He can lift all of them. I'll I'll end by reading one passage in the Old Testament where God uses the word repent two times. It's found in Joel 2, verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, repent or return to me with all your heart and rend your heart, not your garments. Now return or repent to the Lord your God. Why? Because he's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. What a a motivation we have to come to our God in humble repentance, and prayer. And God is merciful and gracious and slow to anger. And if he can forgive Paul, the chief of sinners, he can forgive all of us as well. Amen. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you've given